Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. This is John Tavares from the New York Islanders, and you are listening to Mark and E.J. on Sports Talk New York. Joining us now is a man who is the man we turn to each and every time we want the best coverage and news on the New York Islanders. He has been with Newsday going back to the days when my co-host A.J. Carter was a deputy sports editor there. There he covered high school sports, hockey, and football. This season he moved over to The Athletic, which seems to be the future of sports reporting and journalism. It is a pleasure to welcome back one of the nicest and most knowledgeable men in a field full of really nice people in the hockey world, Arthur Staple to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Arthur. How you doing? I'm good, guys. How are you? Always good. Always good when we can talk hockey for sure. Um, before we get to the Islanders, let's talk a little bit about The Athletic. For those of you who may not know what The Athletic is, it's a subscription-based sports website covering professional and college teams, Chicago, Toronto, New York, and more than 15 other North American cities. The site also covers national stories in football, basketball, uh, baseball and hockey through a mix of long-form journalism, original reporting, and podcasts. Tell us what about the athletic appeal to you after being at Newsday for so long, and how does it differ from when you were at Newsday? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it certainly wasn't something I uh, I was it was it was on my radar, knowing a lot of people had already gone there from other cities, but uh, I never really expected them to come to New York quite so soon, and. Um, Right before Christmas, when I heard from Paul Fickenbaum, who has uh, been the editor of Sports Illustrated for a long time, was kind of the guy in charge uh, over at the Athletic. Um, it was definitely a surprise and uh, and kind of a, a quick uh, a quick uh, time frame to to hear from him initially and and get an offer and really have to consider it strongly and and uh, and make that decision. It was uh, it was definitely exciting to. In the print world, are are thinking about their next steps. They're just thinking about uh, how long they can hang on. And uh, even at a place like Newsday, it's it's always in your mind, uh, especially after 20 years. So um, to be able to to go to a different place and still cover the team that uh, that a lot of the fans have gotten used to me covering, and um, you know, people I'm familiar with, and, and move over and just do it. You know, I, I think it's, back in the 90s. Been, there's the National Sports Daily, and yeah. that was an interesting an interesting publication that didn't quite work as a business model. I think times really changed now. What makes you think that really this is the forefront of sports journalism, at least, you know, something that's available online and that has an interest perhaps nationally as well as locally? I think it's, you know, and it kind of goes to, you know, the second part of Mark's question about how does it differ. It's just, uh, you know, to not have those tight deadlines right after games that, uh, that, We've all experienced in the newspaper world where you've got 20 or 30 minutes uh, to file a, a five or 600 word story, and and really sometimes that's all you get because hockey is not exactly uh, the top of the totem pole for for a local newspaper, especially in New York. So, um, you know, I've gotten used to it over the, over the years, but uh, now having a little bit more freedom where it's a digital only uh, product, and uh, you know, a little bit more time after games. Uh, to to collect your thoughts and see some clips and really go over your your notes a little bit more uh, clearly. Uh, just in that deadline frame is pretty great, and also the longer form stuff is has been uh, something that's a little bit different. I, like I said, you know, 
there's only so many pages that you get, uh, especially these days, whether it's Newsday or the Post or wherever, and uh, you're not going to get space to write a 2,000-word story like I was able to do right when I started talking to a bunch of John Tavares' friends in the NHL about where they think he'll go and what they think he's thinking about. So, um, you know, it challenges me as a reporter to think about doing the job in a little bit of a different way, and I think uh, I think that model going forward is, is going to succeed uh, because that's, you know, I just think that's the way that we're headed with whether it's sports or, or politics, I think, you know, you see it in TV where things are getting chopped up and there's cord people want to choose the channels that they, that only that they want. And I think we're, we're kind of headed that way or we're already that way in terms of, uh, in terms of print or reading uh, news. And you want to digest the things that you want to digest. And if we can get the kind of people that we seem to be able to get uh, at the athletic over the last year or so, in that way, I think people just, are going to be willing to pay not a huge price to, to be able to have their specialized uh, sports news and long-form stories about things that they want to read. You know, we're talking to Arthur Staple of The Athletic, and I totally agree with you. The, the second, it, within, I think, a week, week and a half, Newsday, first of all, you know, between Steve Zappay retiring, you moving over The Athletic, it was like I, I lost two good friends <laughs> in Newsday. Um, but then, you know, Carpy signed on with The Athletic, you signed on with The Athletic, and that was the day that I subscribed to The Athletic. It, it's absolutely great stuff. And, and you did a good tease there about Tavares, because we're going to save that to the end. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little Islander hockey. Let's go back to September. Look at the offseason moves and how they worked out. The Islanders entered that this season coming off a 41-29-12 season, missed the playoffs. They had 2.9 million cap space. They make a trade that brought in right winger Jordan Eberle from Edmonton to reunite with JT. The two of them were unstoppable in the 2009 World Junior Championships. Eberle had 25 goals, 34 assists for 59 points, was plus 5 on the season. He was an upgrade for the guy they traded, Ryan Strom. Do you think the Islanders got exactly what they expected out of Jordan Eberle this season? Yeah, and then some. I think, uh, you know, uh, even when the, the season started to kind of crumble around their ears, uh, he was a very consistent player. He didn't, he didn't hit a lot, of, a lot of skids. He didn't have a lot of uh, games where he was invisible. Um, you know, he certainly did a lot for Matthew Barzal, uh, a guy who's pretty clearly going to win the Calder Trophy, uh, being his, his line mate for all but about seven or eight games of the season. So uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, I think he was as advertised in terms of production, but also I think just as the steady presence in the room when uh, you know they were starting to to falter uh, when you got into December, January, February, he was uh, you know Doug Wade said often he was their best, not just their best forward, but their best player uh, through that stretch, which obviously didn't uh, wasn't able to, to kind of stem the tide of them falling off a cliff, but. Uh, but certainly in terms of that swap, like you said, Ryan Strom was always a guy that the Islanders wanted to see a little bit more from and, and getting uh, nearly a 60-point season from Jordan Everly, 25 goals. You take that every day of the week and uh, even on team with, with some crazy offensive numbers just to see the steadiness at both ends of the ice, I think maybe was the, the part where they were a little bit pleasantly surprised. Yeah, plus five on a team that had a goal differential of a minus 32 is not too shabby either. Um, you just mentioned Barzell, but the talk coming into camp was out of rookie right wing uh, Joshua Hosang. He, you know, everyone thought he's talented enough that he'd be in the Calder Trophy mix. Um, Bavillier, 20, Barzell, 20, um, pretty special players. As it turns out, it looks like 
like you mentioned, Barzell will be the, the Calder Cup trophy winner, and Hosang may never play another game for the Islanders. Let's start with Hosang. And are you surprised at the fact that his Islander career thus far has consisted of 43 games over two seasons? At times, he's found himself on the fourth line or a healthy scratch in Bridgeport. And how much do you think that his quotes in your March 29th column, such as, I know they're working hard, but I got sent down for defense, and what are their goals against in the NHL? I only played 22 games up there this year. I don't think it's my fault. They really painted it like it was my fault at the beginning of the year, and I didn't like that. What do you think that quote will have? What kind of impact will that have on his future as an Islander? You know, it's it's not great. I mean, I, you know, it's it's great, obviously, for my purposes as a reporter and for the fans to be able to hear someone who who doesn't uh, his cliched quotes by the book and really, you know, going back to his amateur days, uh, Josh has never been that way. Um, but uh, you know, I'm sure that that upset a few people in the Islanders' room. It probably didn't sit well with the coaching staff up at the, you know, up in the big club. Um, but uh, you know, this is this is who Josh Hosang is. He's a very talented young man who uh, you know turns the puck over a lot, has the puck a lot, make, can make a lot of great plays, and you know is a very high risk, high reward player, and was a high risk, high reward pick at number 28 a few years ago. And the Islanders certainly knew what they were getting into with him. Um, there was there were no secrets. There were no you know there were plenty of teams in the NHL that wouldn't have drafted him in the seventh round that year. That they just didn't want the headache. So. Um, it's not like it was this, this this attitude that he has is a surprise. And certainly, when he came up at the end of last season, uh, when the Islanders were making their furious charge from the from the lousy first half to try to make the playoffs, he uh, he was a decent contributor. He didn't didn't uh, look out of place those final twenty one games. So you assume that he would have a regular spot. And and I think uh, you know I think he maybe went about it in the wrong way. But it's hard to argue with. Uh, what he said that that uh, you know the team was not good after he was sent down. It's not necessarily the, the reason why they were not good, but if he's being so strongly disciplined, uh, and obviously they're doing that because they see something in him, they're not just tossing him aside. But to, but to get so strongly disciplined and not get a chance to return from the minors uh, while the team is completely in free fall and their third and fourth lines, the third line where he mostly played, had become invisible. And yet there's a lot of veterans who are in the lineup night after night who were doing a lot less than he had been doing when he was here. Um, you know, it's, it's probably tough for him to take. You have to take it when you're a young guy, and that's the way that, uh, that's the way that hockey works. It's the way that most pro sports work, but he's not one to really take it. At. You know, I doubt that uh, there'd be much value for him on the trade market right now that anybody would want to jump in and try to, and try to grab that uh, headache, uh, you know, for their own team. But, uh, but depending on what happens with, the Islanders' situation as we go into next season, they may still need him, and certainly uh, he proved those first, uh, you know, twenty games or so that uh, that he can be a valuable, productive member of the team. You know, then you have the complete polar opposite on a team with John Tavares and Anders Lee. Rookie Matthew Barzell leads the Islanders in scoring. Um, when I, because I cover the Rangers, I don't get to see him night in and night out. I I got to see him against the Rangers, where he basically looked like he was playing Sega Genesis hockey, and the Rangers were like four-year-olds trying to figure out what to do with the controls. You see him night in and night out. How special of a player is he? He's uh, he's one of a kind. You know, I, you say uh, the Islanders haven't seen a guy like him since they drafted Tavares, but these are very different. Sort of star players, you know Barzal, the way that he the way that he skates, uh, the way that he can control puck. You know, I've heard a lot of people mention Patrick Kane. 
Uh, I think he's even a little different than Sidney Crosby. Crosby is uh, is a guy who's obviously great on escape and you know has uh, otherworldly eye hand coordination. But I think Barzell and Kane, where they come into his own, uh, and especially you saw it as as he started to pile up points throughout the year. The defenders were just backing off as far as they could because they didn't know what he was going to do. And uh, you know that's where a guy like Eberle has really helped him because I read off him pretty well, which. Uh, I think some other guys had a little trouble with, and certainly Beauvillier towards the end of the year could do the same. So yeah, this is uh, this guy is a special talent, and uh, you know the fact that he was able to put together such a you know a, a historic rookie season. I think mean, it was the Islanders' best rookie season since Brian Trottier back in the mid seventies. And uh, you know I, I think they know what they have in him. And, and really, when you think about the Tavares situation, if he decides to go somewhere else. Uh, it's not quite the the big blow that it could have been because they do Barzal, who uh, you know handled some tougher assignments as the season went on. Uh, he's a guy who obviously you know like a lot of rookies needs to get a little bit better in his own end and away from the puck and all that coaching speak type stuff. But but certainly with the skill and the creativity he has and the and the ability to pile up points with three five point games this year, he's he's a guy who really feeds off. Uh, his own energy and the and the cre- and the things that he can bring to a game every shift. Uh, he's a guy you need to watch, and it's really uh, you know in a very down season. Certainly something that's uh, that's a big bright spot for them. Uh, we're talking with Arthur Staple of the Athletic. It's interesting that you mentioned that it wouldn't be as big a hit um, if if JT leaves. But you know, obviously, and here's another reason why it might not be: the Islanders can flat out score 264 goals, good for eighth overall in the league, fifth in the conference, more goals than six teams that are in the playoffs right now. But they also gave up an NHL high of 296 goals, had the 24th worst goal differential at, at minus 32. So I guess the question is: is that a product of the system? they play? Is it poor goaltending? Is it inexperienced wings not coming back and, and playing the system? Is it poor defense? Is it poor coaching? Or is it a combination of all those things? And how does that culture change going forward? Yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely a situation. They just, it didn't really matter. You know, their power play ended up, I think, 6th or 7th in the league, but they gave up uh, 11 shorthanded goals, which I believe was 2nd in the league. Um, you know, their penalty kill was uh, just over 73%, which I believe was the worst in 30 years in the league. Uh, and that was after they were in the, solidly in the 80s uh, in percentage uh, success some past years. And then the goal total was, uh, you know, obviously goals were up uh, around the league this year, but, but they were, uh, you know, they gave up not just goals, but shots on goal, Good scoring chances. There were there was a stretch of games there, and uh, you know, towards the end of December and all through January and the beginning part of February, where you know they were they gave up, I believe, twenty six shots on goal to a Columbus team that came in twice in, the, in a ten day span. It just it just seemed like uh, the commitment wasn't there uh, from the forwards. Defense, uh, you know, they got a little bit lost in their own end. Had to change a little bit of structure there in February, which was probably too late to to do anything about it. And goaltending a sub nine hundred save percentage. Um, you know, and then really the coaching unable to adjust and see what the problems were, uh, especially when Calvin DeHaan and Johnny Boychuk went out with injuries uh, within about a week of each other in December, uh, two of their kind of mainstay defense-first type defensemen, and uh, and really that, that contributed to a lot of scattershot play in their own end and uh, poor coverage. And just, like I said, not, it's not even uh, inability to clear pucks, but it was, it was guys settling down into soft areas 15, 20 feet from the net. And, uh, you know, really the goaltending was actually not bad from that point on. It was pretty bad when they were 
fifteen seven and two to start the year, but uh, but facing fifty shots a game, which I believe they did seven times uh, in about a thirty game span, is just uh, the numbers. I think were so astonishing. You started to they just all started to blend together after a while, and and how they fix it, you know, you obviously defense and playing without the puck is is an unpleasant part of the game for guys that are high octane offensive players, but. Um, you can't have that attitude permeate. It's just not the way the NHL works. And uh, to see them fall apart and give up four or five goals a game tells me, you know, they need a, a real number one goaltender. They need another top four defenseman or maybe a couple of defensemen to, to add to their list. And, and really, they're, you know, they have those top six forwards. And like I said, whether Tavares stays or goes, the bottom six forwards were just a, a black hole this season. They couldn't produce enough offense and really weren't able to keep the puck out of their net. So, uh, there's some personnel changes, whether there's a coaching change or a GM change or not. They obviously need to to readjust whatever their focus was for this season because it, none of it was good enough from top to bottom. You know, that, that gets to it, the, the next question, really. It's obvious. The frustration Islander fans have was these shortcomings were apparent throughout the season, and it comes up to the trade deadline. And basically at a time, they were still a couple of points out, maybe a couple of points in, right on the cusp of the, the eighth uh, playoff spot. And Garth basically did nothing. Not basically. He did, he did, he did nothing. Yeah. He made one That's small deal. One small yeah. deal. And, and, you know, what does that say going forward? What does it say when they didn't do anything at the deadline, when the shortcomings were obvious? And what does it say looking forward with terms of any confidence that he can do what has to be done in the offseason? Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think the deadline was really too late. You know, I think when you can look back with the with – the benefit of hindsight, they were already dead in the water by, by the end of February. And, uh, you know, you just to say that they should have done something in December, like I said, when those two defensemen went out, when they, where there were a couple of guys that were available even on waivers, a guy like Cody Franson out of Chicago, who is not a great defenseman, but could have helped uh, with, with some veteran presence. Uh, a guy like Ian Cole, who's in the playoffs now with Columbus, was on the outs in Pittsburgh. They could have gotten him for very little. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some small changes that probably could have at least stemmed the tide to bring in a new face or two, whether you're, you're not sacrificing a lot of assets. Uh, but when you get to the deadline, um, you know, they were already in such free fall. I, I think that was probably the right move by Snow after some wrong moves that uh, he's looking at a roster that's not good enough. That's still giving up tons of goals. Where where one guy is not going to change things. Even a even a new goalie isn't going to change things. They could have Glenn Hall in there, and it wouldn't have <laughs> mattered the way that they were playing. So uh, you know, and and really, what it ultimately comes down to is not knowing what John Tavares is going to do is is also ham. You know, it's totally hamstrung what they wanted to do if they wanted to do anything. They they were in a situation where they were looking like their own pick was going to be a lottery pick which now we know is a lottery pick, was still on the fence there. So are you going to give up one of these two assets that could be a huge for the future of the organization if John Tavares leaves, but can you give those up without knowing what he's going to commit to do? So I think the problems at the deadline this year started last offseason when John Tavares made his request to Garth Snow and to ownership that he didn't want to talk about a contract. He wanted to see, you know, see what was going to happen and possibly go all the way to July 1 of this summer. Uh, and the owners said yes, and uh, and kind of took it out of Garth Snow's hands and said we're gonna we're gonna try to appeal to John Tavares uh, and hope that he wants to sign with us, and we're gonna just sort of give him the year. And in doing so, when the season started to go south, it was uh, it was hard to fix without knowing what the future was gonna hold. 
We're talking with Arthur Staple of The Athletic, and that brings us to the question that's on Islander fans' minds, and basically for the whole season and right up through this entire summer through July 1st. JT, uh, obviously the biggest question, will have the biggest impact on the franchise future. Uh, is if John Tavares will resign with the Islanders or seek out another team via the free agency. Uh, what do you think will be the biggest deciding factors? The fact that, you know, probably for the next three years, since no ground has been broken yet at Belmont, uh, still environmental protection agency reports and traffic things have to be worked out before they can even start construction. So it would probably be at least three to four seasons before he will play an entire season in one arena for his home games. Is that a factor at all? What will be the deciding factor for John Tavares, in your opinion? Um. You know, I think it's. I think it'll come down to uh, something that I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of his friends, uh, from that article that I did, and, and some people around him now. Um, he wants to win, you know, and, and you make a commitment, whether it's eight years with the Islanders or seven years somewhere else. You're going to see, uh, you know, the money is not going to be an issue. He's going to get ten and a half, eleven million dollars a year, and all likelihood, maybe even a little bit more if, if we get into some sort of bidding war. Um, but I think he wants to see that there's a there's a foundation around him, and, and he's not going to go somewhere where there's a team that you know can can afford him, but can't afford much else. And suddenly he's back where he was in 2009 when he joined the Islanders. Um, so you know I, I don't think he's closed the door on the Islanders by any means, but I think uh, he wants to win. And if there's a team out there that can that can fit him in, whether uh, you know, a team like Tampa can shuffle things around and, and make room for him at, at maybe a, a price that's a little bit lower than some other places because Florida has no has no income tax and that uh, helps keep more money in his pocket. Perhaps that's it. Whether a, a team like his hometown Leafs uh, can somehow make it work, I can't see it happening. But if they were to be able to in the mix there, whether he'd be whether that would appeal to him. Uh, Islanders can make enough moves by the time we get to the end of June uh, with those two lottery picks to, to make it seem like there's more of a foundation there. And certainly, like we said, a guy like Matthew Barzal being the number two center or even the number one center to Tavares as being the number two center, that could be a, something that's appealing to him. So I think with the money being equal and now with the future of the franchise, even if it's not going to be uh, till halfway through this deal, um, the, you know, it's the, the arena is something that lends credibility to the Islanders, and, and that's obviously something that's been missing for a long time, and has come in and out with their inability to stay a competitive team and bouncing around between home arenas and in this Brooklyn situation that Tavares and no one else on the team really likes. Um, so I think they've got some credibility, whether whether it comes to other free agents or, or building something for the future, and I think that's almost as important to him as being able to go and play in a brand new arena in, in the short term. So uh, there's that, to me, that's the overriding factor. I think the hard part now as we get into this offseason is with what John Ledecky, with the statements that he gave uh, earlier this week about evaluating all levels of the organization, if, if uh, Garth Snow and, by extension, Doug Waite and the coaching staff are still on notice as we get into the part of the offseason where they've got to start building a team for the future with or without John Tavares. I don't know how that helps uh, Tavares make a decision where he's comfortable staying with the Islanders if he doesn't know what it's going to look like when he signs. It's uh, it's a curious decision to make by ownership going into such an important offseason, whether they didn't feel like they didn't see enough uh, from Garth Snow these last couple of years or from Doug Waite and the coaching staff this past season to, to make uh, a decisive move right at the beginning of the offseason as a lot of other teams like the Rangers did. 
um, or whether they really genuinely think if John Tavares decides to go that that's when they're going to clean house uh, sometime at the end of June or the beginning of July, which would be an awfully curious timing right uh, once you've got the team all set. So wow. there's a lot of there's a lot of ifs and, and hesitations about what's to come in these next couple of months, and I. I don't know whether that's going to affect John Tavares' decision or not, but I can't imagine it puts uh, puts the Islanders in a good light when he's when he's evaluating them. As always, Arthur, pleasure speaking to. See you sometime in September at a rink, and uh, obviously we'll be reading you every day in the Athletic. Great stuff. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Have you got day. it, Arthur Staple of the Athletic.